question for you before we open the Bible. Um, I was in Home Bargains. I know I lead a really exciting life, but I was in Home Bargains on Friday, and I noticed all the Christmas decorations were out. Just stick your hand in the air if you ever buy baubles or tinsel in September. You are... Four of you, right? Okay. Four of you. That's nothing to do with the... That's nothing to do with the sermon this morning. I just wanted to know the answer to that question. I might use it another week. Right, if you turn to page 1045 in your church Bibles, um, we're reading in Acts chapter 13 this morning. It's quite a long reading. I'm reading from verses 13, not sorry, not from verse 1, from verse 13 down to verse 43. And it's titled, In Pisidian Antioch. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you had a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been given. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet to condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us. Their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay, as God has said. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 
Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said to you does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Let's just take a moment and ask God to open these words to us, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks into our hearts. And we just pray that our hearts will now be open to what this passage may say about challenging us to be confident in sharing you with the people we meet. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you have a good memory, you might remember that just before I went off on my sabbatical, I was talking about some of the things I was going to do. And one of the things that I was hoping to do over the summer was to do quite a bit of hiking. Um, I like walking, but quite often life is busy and I don't get that much chance to do it. And one of the walks that I wanted to do was to get um, to drive to Stockport, get the train to Buxton, and then walk back through the Goat Valley to Stockport which I did. Here's some nice views. These are the ones up in the hills, not in Stockport. That wasn't quite as glamorous. But you know what? I made an absolutely fundamental mistake on this walk. It was our wedding anniversary the day I did this walk. Clive was at work, so don't worry. I wasn't being unromantic by going away with the dog for the day. Um, But I had totally misjudged the length of time the walk would take and the distance. So I got off the train in Buxton I just happened to put into my phone, how long will it take me to walk back to the car? I was expecting to say it's about 18 miles. It was 27. (laughs) I had six and a half miles to walk in six and a half hours. 27 miles in six and a half hours. As I was walking, I was walking very, very quickly. At one point, my my phone in my pocket beeped and congratulated me on finishing my first marathon. It was great because I was walking at a speed. I actually thought I was running. I got back to the car, managed to get in the car, drove it home, sat down on the sofa, and then couldn't get up. (laughs) I think I literally, Claire had to sort of hoist me off the floor as I sort of fell onto the floor. I also lost two toenails as a result of this walk, but I won't go into details. I'll show you pictures of that. That was too gruesome. This walk at that speed was beyond me. I don't know why I did it. I should have got on the train sooner. I don't know why I did it. Do you ever find in life that things are beyond you? We all have limitations as human beings, don't we? There are always things that we think, actually, that is just beyond me. I can't do that. It feels emotionally too much. It feels physically too much. It feels spiritually too much, mentally too much, whatever it is. I don't know when you hear people talking about sharing Jesus, whether that gets put into that category of it's just too much. You know, we're quite happy for the superstar Christians, the evangelists, to go around and share Jesus. But when it comes to me, with my family, with my friends, with the people I know, perhaps we think that it's just a little bit too much. So a question for us to think about this morning. Are we ready to share Jesus? Do we feel ready to talk about him? If you were here last week, um, you'll remember that we, we are starting a sermon series that is looking at the life of the Apostle Paul through the lens of how did Paul share the gospel? How did he share it in different contexts? What can we learn from that? And how can we apply that to our life? 
If you're here last week, we were seeing how Paul, Saul as he was in chapter 9, encountered the risen Christ on the Damascus Road and how that changes everything. Nothing remains the same when we encounter Jesus. Now Luke, the author of Acts, he writes in a very fast-paced way. And although we're only like three chapters on from chapter 9, now we're in chapter 13, actually there's about 12, possibly 13 years between these two chapters. Paul spends about 10 years in Tarsus in his home city. We don't know what particularly is going on there. We will come back actually to, to Paul sort of sharing Jesus in his normal life. But then we get to chapter 13, and we're at the point where Paul is on his first missionary journey. And he's traveling around with other Christians, with companions, going to different places to share Jesus. And we find him in a place named Pisidian Antioch. And he's speaking in a synagogue. This is the type of size that a synagogue would have been during that day. They're not huge buildings. Pisidian Antioch is not the great city of Antioch that is in modern-day Syria. It's not that place. It's a much smaller city in Turkey. And the year is probably 48 A.D., um, Paul is uh, considerably older than he was on the Damascus Road. He's in his early mid-40s. I don't know what age bracket that puts him in. Be careful if you tell me, because that's my sort of age bracket. But he's that kind of age. He's more mature. He's had a chance to reflect and think about the gospel. If you've got the Bible in front of you, just look a bit before the passage we read at verse 4. Because everything that happens to Paul is really dependent on what verse 4 tells us. They were sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. All of Paul's missionary activity, everything about sharing the gospel, is a Holy Spirit-empowered activity. I don't know about you, but I find that really comforting. You know, there are times when you can just think, must try harder. Metaphorically beat yourself up to say, why did I miss that opportunity? Yet this is far more relational here. This is Paul knowing the mind of Christ by the Spirit, knowing how the Spirit is leading him. You know, if we are in close communion with God, if we are regularly reading his word, if we're regularly praying, we will find that God opens doors for us. We will find, just as Nicola was sharing, that suddenly an open door is there to talk about Jesus in a particular situation. We will find that God places burdens on our hearts or allows us to talk to perhaps friends who perhaps we wouldn't normally chat to. So it's Paul, led by the Spirit, goes into the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And this becomes his custom when he's sharing in a new place. First of all, go to the synagogue, do the things that he's used to doing, worship with his fellow Jews, and start sharing Jesus in that place. So let's have a look at what Paul does in this message. And it is a message. It's in a formal setting. It's a sermon. It's in in a synagogue. So there are things in it that we will find that are actually quite formal in the way he does it. But he covers an awful lot of ground in a very short message, and we'll see that as we go through. First thing we find is that Paul starts off by telling us that God has been at work in history. If you look at verses 16 to 22, we cover 1,500 years of history in six verses. This is rather like a horse commentator preaching. You can imagine him going at such a speed, trying to cram everything in that he wants to tell people. And he starts off 1,500 years previously with Joseph being in Egypt. He doesn't mention Joseph, but he mentions the, the Jews prospering, the Israelites prospering in Egypt. Then he briefly mentions the Exodus, that first great rescue of God's people, where God's people get led out. And then in verse 17 and beyond, we then get the disobedience in the wilderness. Why does Paul talk about all this? If I'm sharing Jesus with a friend, I'm unlikely to start that far back. 
Why does he do it? Why does he do it? Well, I think the reason is, is that God has always been at work in history. God has always been at work. These were people he was speaking to who believed the law and the prophets. They believed that God had been at work in their history. They knew they were God's chosen people to be a light to the nations. And so what he's doing is essentially here, he is reminding them of what they already know. God has been at work. You are people of God's promises. Verse 20, we zip ahead to the judges. We get Samuel, we get Saul, we get David, called as a man after God's own heart. Remembering for us is so important, isn't it, as Christians, to to retell the accounts, the story of what Jesus has done for us. You know, last week we we took communion together. We do this regularly because it's important to retell, to remember what Jesus has done. You know, Christianity at its heart is a historical faith. It's God acting in time and space. Jesus is not a myth or a legend. It's not some nice philosophy. But it's God who sent his only son to die on a cross, to be risen again, to ascend into heaven and the promise that he will return. I think this really matters, actually, when we're talking about Jesus. You know, we live in a world today where people are often talking about postmodernism. You know, where not people won't accept absolutes. They won't accept things that are definitely true anymore. Anyone watch the David Cameron documentary this week? few of us, a few tentative little hands going up there. And um, he was talking about, actually, how often we live in a post-truth world, a world that deals with alternative facts. I think they used to be called lies, but they're now called alternative facts, where people give misinterpretations of the things that they think may be true. The gospel is not based on alternative facts. Paul is keen to show this is rooted in time and space in history. And you know, as Christians today, we can be confident as we look through the history of the church that God has been and will continue to be at work. We can go back to the apostles. We can then zoom forward to the church fathers, second, third centuries, and see God's hand still at work. We can go right through the dark ages and find that people were still following Jesus there. Up to the Reformation and the great names of like Calvin and Luther, who rekindled the flame of what was going on in the church, right up to the present day. I'm just doing a poll here and doing church history in about half a second. But you can get the picture that God is at work in history. But you know, today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you also have a history, don't you? All of us who have given our lives to Jesus have a testimony to tell. We have a story in our lives of which God is the author. That's incredible, isn't it? There is a story in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, that God has written on the page of your life. Now, I used to think that my testimony was really quite boring. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents are Christians. Um, one side of my gran- uh, one of my sets of grandparents were Christians. Um, I grew up going to church, going to Sunday school, going to youth group. I was baptized at 18. I went to Bible college at 19, and I've been following Jesus ever since. And I thought, what a boring testimony. Now, I used to listen to people who had, you know, lived these lives of wild sin and whatever it was. And it sounded, well, it sounded quite exciting, but I won't go down that road. But it was like they'd been saved from all of this, and then they'd come to know Jesus. And here's me having plodded through. But you know now, looking back, what an amazing testimony of God's faithfulness. You know, I long for my two boys to be stood, perhaps speaking, I don't know what they'll be doing, but in 30 years' time, stood here saying, God has been faithful to me. 
God has been with me. Don't ever think that your story is not worth sharing. Don't ever think that the history that God has written on the page of your life, of which he is the author, will not speak to somebody. Yeah, sometimes I think we can just be so reticent about opening our mouth for the fear of embarrassment. But actually, God will work. We just need to be prepared to give it a go. Speak about Jesus, and the Holy Spirit will guide and lead. Second thing we find is that Paul gives the people, if you like, some facts to check out. I've already mentioned this morning that it was our wedding anniversary over the summer. Um, 19 years this year, I can remember that because we got married in 2000, which is good for me. Helps me to remember how many years we're up to. The gap between the crucifixion and the resurrection and the time when Paul is preaching in Pisidian Antioch is about that length of time. Now, there are lots of people who were at our wedding who you could go to and ask them, what was Jonathan and Claire's wedding like? And you'll hear lots of stories from people. Now, sadly, we've had a number of relatives over that period who, who have died. There was my grandma who was there. There was Claire's granddad, Claire's great-grandma who was there. All who, in those intervening couple of decades, have passed away. That would have been the same in that 20-year period between the resurrection and the crucifixion and then Paul preaching. But there still were lots of people who were eyewitnesses to what had gone on. Lots of people who you could go and check out. So you met the risen Jesus, did you? Okay. And you would hear these direct, face-to-face people who had met the risen Christ. People who were there. So Paul, what he does in verses 23-25, he, he starts to talk about John the Baptist. Now we think, why is he talking about John the Baptist? Why highlight him? In other parts of the book of Acts, we find there were still disciples of John the Baptist around. And perhaps Paul is just thinking, I just need to clear up that he wasn't the Messiah. He was the forerunner. He's the one who points to Jesus, not the Messiah himself. And then in verse 26, we get the incredible line. It is to us that this message of salvation has been given. In our day. In the day of those people who were there. But in verse 27, we find the people in Jerusalem, they hadn't recognized Jesus. As he walked, as he teached, as he performed miracles amongst us, they didn't recognize him. We then get the accounts of the first Easter, of how Jesus was condemned and crucified, but in verse 30, God raised him from the dead. And then verse 31. These are the witnesses to our people, these people who had encountered the risen Christ. We're 1,900 years on. There are no longer any eyewitnesses. There haven't been for 1,900 years or thereabouts. But you know, the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, obedient to Christ's calling, we are still called to be witnesses to the resurrection, to share our stories, to share the stories of our faith that we find in the scriptures. We're called to shine for him in the darkness. That can sound a bit daunting, can't it? But when we think that this is rooted in the work of the Spirit, it's not just about us trying harder, then we realize this is God's work. God has no plan to tell the world about Jesus other than through the church. He's commissioned us. He's equipped us. We're the ones who sometimes forget what we've been called to do. So just to ask that question again, are we ready to share Jesus? Third thing we find from this passage is that Jesus fulfills prophecy. Paul has has already been telling the, the, the people in the synagogue that history points us to Jesus. 
And now he will do the same with prophecy. We find two um, bits of Psalms used, Psalm 2 and Psalm 16, and a quote from Isaiah 55. The prophets, um, for hundreds of years previous to when Jesus came, had been inspired by the, inspired by the Lord to, to write about things that were on God's heart, to write about the future, to write about God's coming Messiah. Now, I'm not a mathematician of any standing whatsoever, but I found this out, and I found this quite interesting. Somebody had worked out the probabilities of Jesus fulfilling prophecies, and they said the probability of one person fulfilling eight prophecies is one in a hundred, and then I'll count the number of noughts. Hold on. One, two, three, four, five times six, so with 30 noughts at the end. That's a lot, isn't it? That's if there were eight prophecies that pointed to Jesus. If there were 48 prophecies, this person worked out that there was one chance in 10 to the power 157th. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds like a lot of noughts to me. If you go to the actual number of prophecies that there are, which is over 300, you come to the point where you say, only God can do that kind of thing. And so here he is, speaking to an audience that believes the law and the prophets, saying, look at all this evidence from your scriptures. It's all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And then comes the application. He's rooted everything back in history and the prophets. He's told people of the witness of people who are alive. He's mentioned prophecy. You always know in Paul that when you get the word therefore, that something good is coming. Because of all this, therefore. And so this is what we get. We get the application of the gospel here. And see what he talks about. Forgiveness of sin. Jesus died as the ransom for many. Jesus dies in our place. We are set free. Set free from sin. It says in John 8 verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Now what a privilege, isn't it? That God has loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us so that we can be free from our past. The millstone of failure that so often dogs us as human beings. The guilt and the shame, that that separates us from God. We have a redeemed past, but we also have a saved tomorrow. It's sin that drives the wedge between us and God. And Paul will say, even the law of Moses, holy though it is, will not give us the justification that we get through Christ. And that word justification, if you know at all anything about the letters that that Paul writes to the church in Galatia or to the church in Rome, this becomes a huge theme of Paul. Justification, being made right before God. Knowing that because of Jesus standing in our place, dying for us, we now have access to God himself, both now and in the life that is to come. Does that resonate deep within you? Does that gospel hope really resonate? Now, perhaps you're here today, and actually you've yet to respond in in a serious way to the call of Jesus. If that's you today, can I just encourage you? Come and chat to me or Will or one of the other leaders. We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus. But I know many of us here have made that decision to follow Jesus, and it may be 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 70 years ago. Is it still resonating? Has the good news gripped our heart in an incredible way? Or have other things started to crowd in? Are we starting to find other things slightly more good and exciting than the good news about Jesus? See, Paul is a good news man. We will find this 
as we look at his life. He will suffer anything if it means he can share the gospel. Anything. Shipwreck, prison. He will end up in front of the emperor. All these things he will suffer for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. But you know, this is not about being fake. Sometimes I think we, we can mix the idea of good news with the idea of being happy all the time. Being a Christian is not the call to the easy life. You know, there, there has been a trend among some churches over recent years to, to stop calling services services and call them celebrations. Um, now, I can understand the reasons behind that because we have an awful lot to celebrate. But I think sometimes the word celebration can almost have that meaning that you have to have a big smile on your face and everything has to be loud and bouncy all the time. I don't think that's what the good news is quite about because it transcends our emotions and our circumstances. You know, this good news, the good news of the gospel is still good news to the church in Syria that has almost been bombed out of existence. The good news of the gospel, as we've been hearing this morning, is such good news to the persecuted church in North Korea. That doesn't mean they can sing their loud songs and necessarily have a grin on their face. But what it means is that their reality has been changed. They were lost and are now found. Things are different because of what Jesus has done. The good news is good news to the Christian dying of an incurable disease, knowing that they're about to meet their Lord and Savior. Why? Because it changes absolutely everything. It's good news. It's goodness at a level that I think as human beings we find very difficult to understand. That deep goodness that is rooted in the heart of God. This is what the gospel is. Christ who suffered, walking with us at all times, even in our own suffering. Resurrection that reminds us that we too, in Christ, one day will be raised with him and reign with him forever. That is good news. But it's good news that needs sharing, isn't it? If we have good news in normal life, we we normally tell people about it, don't we? Even at a fairly basic level, it was um, Tim's 14th birthday on Monday. And that is good news, isn't it? Birthdays. Well, unless you're trying to hide them for, you know, feel you're getting too old or whatever it is, you know, they're normally good news. I have no problems in putting a post on Facebook to say, it's my son's birthday, celebrate with us. Why do we find it so difficult sometimes to share the good news that has transformed our life now and transforms our eternity? See, good news needs sharing. And then we get at the end of Paul's sermon, we get a warning. Again, it's from one of the prophets, this time Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 5, that scoffers will perish. See, the gospel always demands a response from human beings. Jesus would always call people to make that response, to respond to God in faith. This is God's initiative reaching out, and Paul doesn't want anybody to lose out. So he finishes his preach and he gets invited back. It's always a good thing when you're a preacher to get invited back. You wonder if you said something awful if you don't. So he gets invited back to go about the following week. You can read about what happens. That isn't quite as great as what we, we might hope. And eventually he leaves Antioch um, and he shakes the dust off his feet because of the way he's being treated. But we also find that some people stay behind and chat with Paul and Barnabas. So what about us? What does this have to say directly into our situations? Now, I'm guessing that the vast, vast majority of us will not be called to preach a gospel message into a synagogue. I'm guessing that we can't make a direct implication, application of this passage. 
Most of us probably won't be preaching a formal gospel message to people who perhaps haven't yet sort of understood the gospel or made that response to Jesus. But all of us are called to be witnesses. All of us, if we're following Jesus, have a story to share. All of us have something in our lives that God has authored and that deserves to be told. People we meet, friends, families, neighbors, work colleagues. You know, if we're bold enough to share, if we're bold enough simply to open our mouth and give something, even just a glimmer of the hope that we have, you know, I firmly believe that the Holy Spirit will guide and lead us. Look at this verse from 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Not with aggression, not with sort of anger, but with that love for people that God has for them. Good news needs sharing. If you've been watching the, the news or reading about the news this weekend, you'll have probably, um, probably won't have escaped your notice that there have been a lot of climate change protests going on around the world, particularly sort of driven by young people who are saying, actually, you know, governments need to change their policy, that we're facing an environmental catastrophe. And it's something that has really caught a lot of people's imaginations. What we see behind that whole movement is a real sense of passion. Something needs to be done. This story needs to be told. It needs to be got out there. What we find in Paul is passion. That sense that the gospel is worth everything. I wonder how you feel when we talk about sharing the gospel. Perhaps you do feel fearful. Perhaps you do, like I sometimes do, think, what will people say back? I might be embarrassed. You know, Paul suffered shipwrecks and prison. We might be embarrassed. It's interesting, isn't it, how we react Or perhaps today we may be doubting. We may be in a verse 42 situation when actually we've got questions that we need to wrestle through with somebody. You know, if that is you today, Jesus would never turn people away with questions. He would always talk to them. Paul doesn't send people away and say, no, I've told you, just go away and believe. He would talk to people. You know, we need to do this one-anothering stuff where we can chat to one another. We need to be a church where there are no questions that we can't ask. Because it's only through asking questions and learning from one another that we grow as disciples of Jesus. It's also worth mentioning here that Paul rarely did mission on his own. Well, he was never on his own because the Holy Spirit was with him. But he often went with other people. Here he's with Barnabas. He has a team of people with him. This is not for the superstar. This is for everybody. I talked last week how there was a real challenge to put Jesus first in our lives. A real challenge that actually something I've been chewing over over the summer, is that we can substitute God for churchification. I know that's not a word, but I'm going to use it for a while yet. Churchification, this kind of thing that sucks us into the mechanics of keeping church going. And we can find, rather than discussing our life with Jesus, we we start to discuss the things of church. And we find ourselves talking about cupboards and agendas and all these kind of things, rather than talking about Jesus. I think I'm convinced of this, that the more of Christ we know in our lives, the more we will desire to make him known. If we know Christ, if we have that burning desire to encounter him in in his word and by his spirit, then the more we will desire to share him. 
Last Sunday afternoon, I was invited to go along to the Northwest Baptist Association forum, and there was a service that followed. Now, that, that's like an, the first part was an annual general meeting, which wasn't the most exciting event in the history of the universe. But the, the bit that followed, the service in the afternoon, was, was really great. And the, the general secretary of the Baptist Union was sharing, and they, they said something along these lines, that as they travel around the country, what they're seeing is churches taking seriously this call to dwell in Christ at a deeper level. Of churches that are taking the call to pray and the call to encounter Christ more Seriously. And where that happens, we're starting to see life. Starting to see people who will then share Jesus. And they told a story. And they said, actually, for many of us as Christians, we're a bit like the picture on the right. We're a bit like a lawn. And if you've got grass in your garden, you will know that it's really hard to kill it. You can ignore it. You can just let it be watered every now and again. You can have a drought. I don't think we'll have one today, but you can have a drought. And we'll t- it will look like that after a drought. But then the rain comes, and it will come back to life again. And they were sort of saying that many Christians exist in that kind of way. You know, we, we get a bit of God's word every now and again. We, we encounter something of the Spirit at work in us. But actually, we, we just sort of trundle along like a lawn. Nothing exciting ever happens to a lawn. It grows a bit, you cut it. It grows a bit more, you cut it. And that, that's what happens. And that's how a lot of us as Christians survive. We survive like a lawn. And they said, wouldn't it be amazing if we were not satisfied with being alone, but actually we wanted to be a fruit tree? You see, if you have a fruit tree and you want it to grow fruit, you have to water it. If the drought comes and you don't water it, you won't get anything. It will die and shrivel up. And they were saying, wouldn't it be amazing if as churches we took seriously the call to dwell in Christ, to live in him, to get to know him more, to be watered by the word and the spirit so that we bear fruit. And they went on to tell a story. And they said about this one church that had decided to meet to pray, to seek God for their church and their community. And they were doing it day by day by day. And they said they were meeting in prayer one day and they'd really felt burdened that God would give them something, a way of reaching out to their community. As they were sat there, there was a knock on the door. There were three homeless people stood there and said, can we come in? So the people said, yeah, we're praying. Come and join us. They did. Amazing, isn't it? They came and joined them. And the story then went on that actually that was the start of an amazing ministry to the homeless. People becoming Christians. Why? Because they were dwelling in Christ. They were seeking him. And from knowing him, they sought the spirit and the spirit just moved. Are we going to be a church that will dwell in Christ more richly? On Thursday night at our prayer meeting, um, we're going to spend some time discussing our prayer life as a church And how we could move to a place where daily prayer is part of our routine. Where dwelling in Christ is part of what we do. Because we want to make Christ known. So I'm going to ask that question again. Are we ready to share Jesus? It's going to leave a moment of quiet. You may want to just pray that the Holy Spirit will guide you perhaps to a name or to a situation where this week you may be able to just share something doesn't need to be a five-point sermon. In fact, it's probably better if it isn't. But it might just be a word of hope, a word in season, something that the Spirit leads you to share. So let's just leave a moment's quiet, perhaps just to apply that, and then I'll pray, and then if the musicians can come, we'll sing our final song.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that the gospel is such amazingly good news. We thank you for the reminder from the book of Acts that sharing you is led by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray that as a church, that as we seek to move forward, as we seek to to grow in you and make you known to our communities around here, that your spirit will be the one who leads, who sends, who empowers us for service. And Lord, perhaps in the the silence, perhaps we have been praying for a particular person or a situation. Lord, would you open doors for us this week to share? Lord, would you guide us? Would you help give us those right words as your word has promised that you will do? Lord, help us to share you with, with gentleness and kindness and respect and be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.